and welcome to Pod Pod. I'm your host, Rihanna Dillon, and this week we are talking to comedian, writer, TV presenter, and of course, podcaster, Matt Ford. So you might know him as an impressionist for Spitting Image. He's also the host of the Political Party podcast and British Scandal, along with Alice Levine. And when we spoke to him, he was in Edinburgh with his comedy show Inside Number 10, which he is taking on tour, so you'll be able to see that in November. Before we get to Matt, though, we have, of course, our regular contributors, Adam Shepard and Reem Makari. Hi, Hello. guys. Hello. Nice to be recording in the same studio. Yeah, nice Although, to see your face in person. Yeah, not quite so nice to be recording in a glass sweat box of a studio, <laughs> which is already becoming problematically hot. <laughs> it's so warm. I'm wearing the least out of anyone and I feel like I'm sweating the most. <laughs> so. I have an iced coffee on hand, so I'm like, all I'm right. good, I'm chilling. Oh, lucky you. <laughs> you being all prepared. <laughs> so how have you guys been? What's been going on in the news this week? Well, the thing that appeared on my timeline this weekend, very unexpectedly, which was a video of Ed Balls, Robert Peston and a few others doing punk covers at a street festival, which pretty much gave me whiplash when I saw it. <laughs> and John Wilson, right? And John Wilson, that's right. Lovely John Wilson. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. I don't know I don't know why or how this has come about, but it's a little bit bizarre cuz it would it's sort of like the world's weirdest crossover cuz it was posted by Dino Sophos yeah. of Persephonica. <laughs> and uh Bulls and Peston of course have both launched sort of rival economics podcasts. So it's sort of like a weird some podcast Avengers thing. <laughs> I just think it's it's so funny to look at that video and then when you see the charts and you see like the rest is politics and the news agents competing constantly and even Alistair Campbell joked on the podcast before that they're like their rivals or their runner-ups and you'd think that they have this like big rivalry from afar but then actually they're they're really just friends. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting like all these so-called rivalries in podcasting because how seriously do we take any of them really not even remotely (laughs) it's very much that sort of friendly professional rivalry type thing in that they all know the same people they all move in the same circles Mm. go to the same christmas parties so none of it's actually serious but it is interesting to see them going as far as actually sharing a stage. I find it more shocking that Ed Balls and George Osborne are sharing a microphone. That I find <laughs> to be it's so much more jarring than any other pairing mm. this year. And that now has an official name, which is exciting. So it's uh, the podcast that they're doing is going to be called Political Currency. Okay, let's move on to Matt Ford then. I have to say, we were all sort of like messaging towards the end of this interview being like, God, he's lovely, isn't he? Mm. He was just such a easy, warm, friendly guest, despite having, I think, severe sciatica while recording this. (laughs) Poor Matt Ford. I tell you what, it does really make you understand how he gets such good interviews out of big name political guests. Yes. 
Yes, because he does just give off such a an openness and mm. you do feel like you're in very safe hands, even as the interviewer. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like in safe hands with Matt Ford, which is quite unusual, but I have to say a very pleasant experience. Mm. So we always try and go in with an angle with our interviews. But to be honest, with Matt Ford, that slightly went out the window because we just talked about anything and everything from Jacob Rees-Mogg to political satire and we definitely got some impressions out of him as well which Mm. is always a bonus stick around to the end for that okay nice here is matt ford talking to me and adam matt ford welcome to pod pod thank you so much for joining us from edinburgh yes thank you for having me on it's a it's a pleasure to be here I had a listen to your Angela Rayner interview on stage, which just sounded like the most amount of fun. And I have to say, one question I wasn't expecting you to ask her was if she was on drugs while she was pictured (laughs) raving. (laughs) That just sets the scene so brilliantly for your kind of comedy. (laughs) Well, she's one of those people you can have a lot of fun with. And, And the political party, which is one of the podcasts I do, is effectively a chat show with politicians. On the whole, I tend to have one guest and I'm genuinely interested in them and I let them speak and everything. And with some guests, you have to do a bit more work. With others, you get a sense of where you can push it. And with Angela, you can basically ask her anything. And she's inviting you to kind of go there, really. She's talking about being raving till six o'clock in the morning. It's a bit of an open goal to wonder how she manages to do it in her 40s. But she told me a whole load of other things, as well as you'll have heard about her favourite cocktail, Venom. Venom, yeah. And uh, the effect it has on the local Labour group. And, um, how she burns calories in the early hours with a boyfriend. So it was just, uh, as always, she delivers in a way that only she can. So... The political party boasts a pretty stellar lineup of guests, Angela Rayner, who you've mentioned, and quite a lot of other top names. How do you manage to get such heavyweights on the show? I just ask them, um, is, the, is the really sort of basic Great, let's move on. answer. Yeah, I ask them, some take longer than others. And I, but I think it comes back to the question really is that they know it's, a, for want of a better phrase, it's a safe space. They know that they can come and relax. They can be themselves. There'll be an audience there that wants them to be like that. It's not going to be awkward. And that they're in the hands of an interviewer that is trying to get them to show that side of themselves. So a lot of them listen to it. A lot of them want to be on it. And a lot of them see the value in it. There are very few places where a politician can go be interviewed by an hour in, in good humour and have someone that isn't going to necessarily agree with them or, or the things that they say and certainly is going to ask them difficult questions, but it's going to do it in a way that, that puts them at their ease. I listened also to your Jacob Rees-Mogg interview because I wanted to really get like, you know, a sense of the spectrum of the people that you speak to. And I have to say that the vibe was very similar to that Angela Rayner episode, which was surprising. So tell me about that. You kind of say that you're always on their side, but ne- not, I guess not necessarily talking about politically at that point, but in that you want to look after them as a guest? Yeah, and I want them to to show off the wrong phrase, but I I want them to kind of open up a bit. I want them to show their real selves. And again, Jacob Rees-Mogg is a very funny person and he's great company. And if you see it through the prism of a chat show, then you want a guest on that's going to deliver. And he always delivers. He's very funny. You know, he says things that I completely disagree with, but that's fine. And, And also I think there is a kind of... I started doing this really before the culture wars had happened. I started doing the political party in 2013 because I was frustrated then that there weren't enough places for this sort of thing. And it really, it's sort of developed into an accidental antidote to all that because I think most people are 
really comfortable in their friendship groups and their families talking to people they have very different political opinions to. The vast majority of people can live in that world and always have done. I think the danger is, is that a very vocal minority create the impression that actually you, you can't talk to people who have any, you know, that are a millimeter to the left or to the right of you. And I just think that's not real life. So I think these things are hugely cathartic for people. I think they enjoy listening to Jacob Rees-Mogg, even if they wouldn't vote for him. And I think people who do like Jacob Rees-Mogg are happier for him to come on my show, even though, you know, they probably don't share my politics. Do you have a dream guest or anyone that you definitely wouldn't get on? I think anyone who's been prime minister or president, anyone who's been a world leader, I, I mean, I, I would really love to interview David Cameron mm. and Theresa May would be fascinating, even Liz Truss. <laughs> <laughs> would that be a short interview? Or? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I should do like a concept album <laughs> yes. where the interviews of the politicians are, <laughs> are, are, Relative are to the very length according yeah. to... Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, Boris Johnson would be fascinating. I think there are some people that are... At the start, I didn't used to worry too much about that. And I still think, I don't think I would have, for instance, Alex Hammond on. Mm. I think taking money from RT is really bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think spreading misinformation and things like that. And I think the nature of the trial that he stood, even though he was found not guilty and not proven on one count, the nature of his defense troubled me. So there are some people that I wouldn't have on. And I think now, I mean, I had Tommy Robinson on when he just left the EDL. Oh, wow. And at that point was a figure of hope. There was a brief period where he'd done some work with the Quilliam Foundation and was working with a guy called Majid Nawaz, who sadly now has sort of <laughs> ended up somewhere else. But there was a period where actually there was this hugely hopeful moment where this yeah, he described him as sort of, you know, far right English Defence League leader was leaving the EDL and it looked like a great cost to his personal security. And it looked like he was prepared to consider changing his life and turning it around. And I just found that such a hopeful moment and was really keen to interview him. And obviously since then, sadly, he's he's sort of slipped back into it. And that's just a great shame. Mm-hmm. I had Farage on back in 2013. I'm not sure I'd have him on now. Mm-hmm. Times change. My attitude towards certain people changes according to what they're doing. You know, I've always thought about Jerry Adams. I think he would be a fascinating interview. It would be fascinating. Mm. Yeah. And I think, well, if he, he went through the peace process, it, 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 who am I to like not try and have a chat with him and understand his perspective on life? So I think there are very few people that I wouldn't have on because I think, I think you should be able to talk to people, even people on the extremes that you really disagree with. Where do you sort of stand on that argument about, you know, having people on various shows or podcasts is just further kind of airing their views or giving them more screen time, FaceTime? And because it sounds like you you don't necessarily think that's the problem, but is that just because of the nature of how you interview them and the fact that it's a podcast, which isn't as mainstream as something like the BBC? Maybe. I mean, I think it's difficult. I can see both sides. I mean, I, I, I had some experience in this. I worked in Stoke for the Labour Party years ago where we had a massive problem with the BNP and they'd got nine seats on the local council. In fact, they got so many councillors, they were entitled to effectively secretarial support and <laughs> council staff had to work for them. I mean, it was, it was, it was incredible. Yeah. And at that point, the Labour Party had always no platform them and it, and it basically hadn't worked. The only way... I say we, I was Labour then, um, defeated them, was to debate them and sort of highlight how little these people knew. And, and not just about, this is the problem was, 
get them talking about bin collections, schools and hospitals, and they haven't got a clue. They've got one thing they want to talk about. <laughs> yeah. If you get them off that, yeah. they're clueless. And you're sort of shining a light on them in the end was the way to defeat them. But that was once they were in. So I kind of, I, I, depending on the individual debate, I, I kind of swing on both sides. I, I can find myself on either side of the debate, depending on what day it is. But I think in general, the best thing to do, I think no conversation is, is the wrong outcome. I think there has to be some sort of scrutiny and there has to be some sort of dialogue. I mean, again, the vast majority of my guests are all in the mainstream anyway. Mm. So it's not something that really is an issue for me. But I would hope, I think in general, it's better to talk about things than not. And it's better to talk about them with the people than not. Mm. But you have to, I think you, you're right, you have to be so careful not to legitimise people. I mean, I, Nick Griffin on, on Question Time was the big moment, wasn't it? Yes. Because I thought, mm. actually, the, again, the thing they should have talked to him about was public services, yeah. get him on other stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just show how little this guy knew about the daily life of people, mm -hmm. and how few answers he had to the, to the real problems facing the country rather than just talk about the one thing he's completely obsessed with. It's also, once you have people on like that, how then do you mediate and, and, and execute that conversation? But yes, luckily for me, it's not really an issue because the vast majority of my guests are, are mainstream. And when I've had Tommy Robinson on, it was at the point where he was, at that point, I thought that we were almost going to get a sort of Good Friday Agreement <sighs> style moment. And sadly, we didn't. When you're interviewing them, as you say, because it is a pretty safe space, are you hoping for exclusives or breaking news? Despite, you know, you're not necessarily a news podcast, but of course it plays into that in the same way that the news agents might be on the other end of the spectrum, but comedy certainly plays into how they talk. Yeah, I never try and get too newsy because I think... I always want to talk to them about the stuff that's going on at, at that moment because that's quite an interesting way to, to open the interview. But I quite like the, uh, the thought that these are just time capsules of individuals that are preserved forever that people can just go back and listen and would still get a lot out of in 20 years' time when they didn't know what the news that week was. You know, the stand-up at the start of them is topical, but beyond that, really, I, I want it to be kind of a bit broader. Obviously, depending on when you interview people, you realise you've got an opportunity to have a deeper conversation with them about a particular thing. And I think that's a really good thing to do and to give them the opportunity to ha perhaps explain it in more detail, which I just think is great, is that... So there's obviously part of you that always thinks, what is a more interesting way to have that conversation? I, you never want to just repeat the same questions. And obviously, because I'm not a journalist, I think I do approach it differently. Mm. I think sometimes journalists can hunt in packs, and that is a good thing, because that, that sort of constant pressure can get to the truth, and that's important. But also, I think that, that because I, I, I'm quite, obviously, political myself... Mm -hmm. So I kind of think I know how they think a lot of the time and I'm trying to kind of get around that. But also I'm looking for just, I can be a bit cheeky with them. Yeah. Mm. And I think that's, We've heard. that's, <laughs> that's I guess, the, the point of difference is because I can just be a bit cheeky with them. You know what I think it's a bit like? It reminds me, I listened to Gary Neville's thing, The Overlap, mm. and he has other footballers on and they just, because they're mates with them, they talk to them completely differently. Mm. I think that's basically it. They all know that I used to work in politics. They know that I'm a fan of politics, even though I mock it. Yeah. And I think just that fundamentally means they think, well, this guy isn't a journalist trying to catch me out. This is mm. basically a sort of critical friend of the profession. And I trust him that if he's taking me in a particular direction, it's because it will be good for me to talk about it. I think that's basically it. Do you think the the fact that it's a podcast rather than something for radio or TV plays a, a role in that? Do you think that that kind of helps with the sense of safety? Does that make it a better medium for political satire? 
I think it can do, definitely. I mean, obviously what I also have is a live audience and mm. that is something that when I first started didn't appreciate how that would affect the dynamic. And if anything, I thought it would make it harder. If anything, it made it easier because if it's one thing a politician loves to do is impress an audience. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly if they get a laugh, you can see them think, oh, well, I, I want a bit more of that. That is a heady drug. Because so. they're so used to being heckled in the House of well, Commons, yeah. maybe. And see their ego <laughs> swelling in real time. <laughs> yeah, the warm embrace of a comedy audience laughing at them. <laughs> you know, it's kind of unique for them, really. Um, and also it's just if... I think in one-to-one interviews, say taking the Sunday program as another example, if if an interviewer and a, and a guest know that there's only three or four minutes and the guest is playing for time and they're refusing to, to answer, in a way that the, the adrenaline is then on the interviewer's side, they're like a bowler trying to get around a batsman, whereas I've got an hour or so and if I'm just gently nudging them and they're not playing ball, the audience will kind of... Not bristle, but, you know, if, if they go, oh, you know, they don't want to let them down. <laughs> so I think that, if anything, just makes them open up a little bit more. What about for you as a podcast host? Because, you know, you, you as we all do, have to sit in rooms recording with no audience. and But of course, you also weave in these live audiences as well. Of course, you feed off the audience. But do you have a preference when it comes to recording a podcast? And how different is it to a live stand-up gig? That's a really good question because I think there are real strengths in both. And I think what I find is obviously if I'm in front of an audience, I'm basically showing off. Yeah. And that's my job. Yeah. And I've got to like make them laugh. Otherwise I am a failure. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just as simple as that. That's it's zero sum really if you're a comedian. <laughs> when I'm, even when I'm just recording the little intro and outro and I'll do, do them on my own in my flat, I actually find that such an intimate thing to do. And I think that is, and it comes back to your question really about different media is, I think there's something so intimate about podcasts that is, and I have that relationship as a listener with the shows that I like is I, I really feel, you know, when I'm interviewing the guest, I'm thinking about them, but I'm also thinking about, is this an entertaining show? Have I talked about the things I want to talk about? Is the crowd enjoying it? And everything, things like that, seeing it basically as a, as a show. Mm. And then when I'm just at home introducing it and just summing it up or whatever, I just find that such a, a really nice intimate thing to just be able to start an interview and say, I feel like I'm just having a phone conversation with one person, really. Mm. And I think so many people are going to listen to this all over the world at different times, maybe at many years in the future. And what a cool thing that just me on my own here now with this microphone, I'm going to say something they're going to listen to. You're just, you're recording a part of yourself and you're putting it out there forever. And I think there's something magical about that. Maybe I'm overthinking it, but I was thinking... <laughs> In a way, I kind of enjoy that bit the most. I guess, it, it, you know, it's the, it's the magic of an intimate broadcast for, for other people, mm. I think. It's, yeah. it's like the, the kind of, that can also be the, the, the enjoyable element of it. It's that idea of shouting into the void, except the void sometimes talks back. <laughs> yeah, like a message in a bottle, I guess. You're tossing it out there and then... Through your iTunes uh, reviews or, you know, Twitter, <laughs> you get little messages washing up on your shore and it's like, oh, 
that one reached New Zealand. <laughs> so there's something really um, cool about it. Well, on that subject then, both the Political Party and British Scandal, which is the other podcast that you do, which uh, we'll come to shortly, they're both very UK-centric in terms of their sort of subject matter. Is that reflected by the sort of breakdown of the audience? Is it kind of predominantly UK? Or as you say, does it reach more far-flung corners of the world? Well, both of them do. I mean, British Scandal, I think, Half of its listeners come from abroad. Oh, wow. It's got a huge international following. Um, uh, lots in America, lots in Australia, and lots elsewhere. And we get messages from everywhere, which I just love. And the political party gets out there a lot. I mean, I do try and have more international guests on. And I've had Julia Gillard, who used to be the Prime Minister of Australia. I've had the Mooch <laughs> on a couple of times and a few Democrat people on, because obviously really interested in American and Australian politics. So mm. I need to do more of that. But really, I think it's just a reflection of the fact that I worked in British politics for a bit. I'm based here and like that's most of my material is about domestic stuff. And then I've ended up creating a podcast that reflects my interests. And I guess the same is true of British scandal. But I think because of the nature of that and the fact that it, it came out of American scandal, there was already an international market for that sort of thing. So I think British scandal has a really big international following. And do you think because it has the word British in, like British Bake Off and that idea Americans have of, you know, the Brits, do you think there is weirdly a kind of market for things just generally British abroad? Definitely. And I think, well, two things, because, and also I know that in myself as a consumer is, for instance, I love watching Ramsey's Kitchen Nightmares USA. Oh, yeah. Or Undercover Boss it's USA. it's absolutely mad. And you know it's going to be mad because it's American. Bigger and wilder, yeah. yeah. Like, whenever it's like the British version, you think, oh, I want the American one. Like, I, want the, I want the hard stuff. I want Jerry Springer. Do you know what I mean? So I think the same as with us is the British. I mean, in a way, scandal lends itself to Britain so much better because... The story we tell ourselves as a nation is that we are, you know, we invented the rules, cricket, football, uh, we're the mother of parliaments, and we understand how to, you know, play fair, and we're the biggest hypocrites out there. You know, we're just as, <laughs> we're corrupt in our own way, but, you know, we break the rules and we cheat and we lie and we do all those oh. other terrible things. We have government ministers that break the law, we have prime ministers that break oh. the law. And also, it's, it's the class system here just makes it so much more ripe for that sort of thing, oh. is the difference in privilege. I mean, even, and we get into this a lot in British scandal is, it's not even just about being rich. Yeah. It's about breeding. Mm. It's about, were you part of the right family? You know, it's so mad that you could even go to Eton and Oxbridge and be part of like the millionaire, even billionaire class. But if you're not part of a really small clique, you're basically made to feel as much of an outsider as I would be, <laughs> which is just crackers. So that, all that, that I think the, the layer of hypocrisy that runs through British history and, and the class system here just, just makes it so much more fun to expose. Well, and also we do do scandals really quite well, you know, looking at some of the stuff just that you've covered on British scandal, you know, there's the Profumo affair and Lord Lucan, which, okay, Watergate might be bigger in scope, but... Lord Lucan, for example, is just an unhinged story. So, oh, yeah. you know, how do you choose what topics to cover when you've got that kind of richness of material, particularly from a comedy perspective? Well, that's a really good point because we didn't want it to just become always set in the same place. Because when you think a lot of those, you know, Archer, Profumo, you know, they're all basically... House of Lords, Cambridge rich Spies. white blokes yeah. <laughs> from a very similar background, <laughs> yeah. 
you're like, well, they always take it. And it's quite nice to have common threads. You know, oh no, we're back in this particular, Mm -hmm. you know, gentleman's club again or wherever. Mm. So we do try and mix it up with things like the canoe man, John Darwin, uh, the coughing major on Millionaire. Yes. Nick Leeson and the fall of Barron's Bank. Gaza we did, which was phenomenal. Mm. So just try and mix it up. And I think it's good to get different accents and different places and different settings in there. But obviously the establishment itself has given us so many through the Royals a lot of the time and through Parliament. So that sort of square mile of London (laughs) delivers a lot of scandal. And we are always mindful of trying to get out. So sometimes we'll pitch them. I mean, we have an amazing team of writers and they work on things like Hollyoaks and EastEnders. And when you're reading them, like each scene has a cliffhanger. Like they're Mm. so elegantly, brilliantly written that the adrenaline when you're reading it is is something else. So being able to present effectively history in a scandalous way written by people of, of that calibre was such a mad treat. I almost feel like I can't take any credit for the success of the podcast at all. I'm like, all I do is just read it out and do some funny voices. It, I feel like everyone else uh, should get the credit. And you present, obviously, with Alice Levine, who I saw the other day, and I forgot to tell her how much I love British Scandal. So at least I get to tell you how much I love British Scandal. (laughs) If you speak to her, tell her I love it. I will let her know, yeah. But we were talking to the women who present Red Handed about the formula for a perfect presenting duo. And we sort of came to the conclusion that actually, when you're colleagues as opposed to best friends, actually, it's easier as a listener to to feel included. So do you think that is the case as well for you? you and Alice that you work so well and that you have such a great dynamic because you don't necessarily you didn't go to school together you know you don't have all in jokes go back to when you were five no that's right I think that's a really good point in fact I never thought of that element of it I think we kind of got lucky I think we've got enough in common and enough that's different Mm. and I think that I think that's like and I don't know how to quantify that in terms of a percentage but I think any good dynamic you have to basically broadly be on the same page, otherwise it's a nightmare. Yeah. But then there have to be points of difference. So one of you is slightly more straight-laced than the other one, or one of you will push the envelope a little bit more than the other one, or one of you plays dumb or whatever it is. And I just think fundamentally the difference in me and Alice is we, we have a very different style is I've never worked with anyone as, I don't even know how to describe it, but Alice has such a unique talent for whatever you're talking about when you're just ad-libbing or riffing, she can just end it perfectly. And it's like, it's like an athletic ability <laughs> of the mind that I've never encountered before. And you're like, oh my God. She can always just end it there in a, in a really funny way, like the perfect ending. You think, Jesus Christ. You know, she's just wonderful. It's like the perfect dismount for every joke. Yeah, she's just a, an exceptional talent and she does it with like a real composure, whereas I get very overexcited and I can sort of feel my mind going. Do you know what I mean? I'm just like, ah! <laughs> like a sort of chimp in the corner. Whereas this is like the kind of calm, <laughs> rational voice of reason, but no less, you know, extremely witty, so sharp, such a great brain and, and really understands how to tell a story. And I think that's one of the things about British Scandal as well is the producers and the writers and Alice and I, and I say this about them rather than of myself, but I just think they know how to tell a story. They know how to make it engrossing. They know how to suck you in. You know how to like impart the information. And I think that's why it's not clunky and it is funny and daft and it, it absorbing is everyone who works on it, everyone who's doing the sound and the writing, the production and the editing, it's all about hooking you into a story and how every little beat of that is basically as addictive and engrossing as possible. And, and I think Alice really understands that. 
Is there ever, you know, if you're doing a story, you're talking about the importance of having different accents and whether that's regional or abroad, whatever, are there any that you sort of dread? <laughs> are there any that you see coming up that you're like, I haven't actually nailed this one yet? Yeah, I really struggle to do Liz Truss. Ooh. So that's just, <laughs> a, and it, yeah. obviously part of the problem is I find it really embarrassing because I'm like, in a way, I'm like, I'm the guy who does the voices. And then like, if I can't do it, I'm like, oh God, why am I even here? And so I find that a bit embarrassing. I mean, there'll be like a, a bit part character that no one really knows, but it's kind of important that you get it right. Mm. And they'll say something like, oh, they're half a German, half Italian. And you're like, bloody hell. Fuck, how am I supposed to do that? <laughs> how do I do it? Like, I can't even do one of them let alone both at the same time <laughs> and then obviously you never want to sound and I'm obviously acutely aware of this doing stand-up is you never want to sound like you're laughing at someone's voice like, it, yeah. it, unless it's like if you're doing like a William Hague and you're enjoying how he sounds that's different you would never want to sound like you were mocking someone's accent no that's always like at the back of your mind but I don't think they've ever I don't think they've ever put accents in that would that would mean that we were ever in danger of doing that but yeah with some of the international ones I just think oh god I hope people don't think I'm doing like hello hello really cod German obviously when you do German like you can't help I just find the easiest way sometimes to do an accent is to just do like the big silly version mm. first and then pare it down so that often means that the first go probably sounds absolutely outrageous <laughs> if you did like a German one you're like probably makes you sound terrible and then I can sort of pare it down from there but it's, it's sometimes and this will happen to both myself and Alice we'll just say we'll just come back to that and we'll move on with the script and then we'll just do them all at the end in one like we'll just put on a German accent and we'll just like go ah you've had the shops earlier how are you you know it's just like, oh my god just like really bad old Bond film accents terrible just got to pare it back from Colonel Clink to Angela Merkel yeah, yeah, and sometimes, sometimes it's just what the sentence is. Like, we'll like rearrange the words to like make it easier. So I'll need like a little noise. I'll be like, oh, can I just say ah at the start? I'll go ah, you are late today, rather than just like you're late today. I'm like, I find it hard to go in on a why. So I'm like, can I just change? You know, mm. you're basically altering history so that I can get a silly voice correct. But I think that's worth it. We'll call it artistic license. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So speaking of that kind of process side of it, then uh, you've mentioned the kind of writers and researchers and whatnot, uh, but can you talk us through the process of bringing a, I guess, a season of British Scandal to life? What does the process involve? So I think the lead time can be quite, I think it can take a, quite a while. I mean, the episodes are like 30 sides of A4. Oh, Wow. So when we read them out, they take a few hours and we'll tend to do maybe one a week and we meet up in a studio in central London. I think sometimes they can take, I don't know, weeks or months to produce. You know, they're being edited, they're being supervised by a producer who then, you know, will look through them and make sure, you know, structurally and just factually and all these things. I mean, each one is like a mini film script, really. So a series of three or four episodes is, well, you're talking longer than a feature film in terms of time. <laughs> And then all the other things that have to be put into it. So they are real big projects and they'll often be shared between writers. So I think they can take quite a while. I don't think there's quick things to knock up. So there's always a few more series being worked on. Whenever we're recording one, there's always three or four others in production at that point that are almost ready mm. to come down the line. So I think, I think it's a, I think it's a, a big team. And I, I, from what I gather, 
And I think they slightly keep us away from the sausage machine, but um, <laughs> I, I think because um, I'd eat all the sausages, but um, <laughs> they don't let me look at the writing either. <laughs> but they, um, <laughs> but they, uh, yeah, I, I think it takes a while. I think, you know, these are, these are big projects. Mm. And I think it shows, you know, the quality of the writing is so good. I think I would be shocked if people could do that in a day. You know, I mean, it's, it's really high quality stuff. Mm. Do you ever have any influence over what's coming up or are you just told? Well, we had like a meeting at Christmas where we all got together in the room and like we all had to like pitch three ideas. And we've made some of those. Gaza was one of those. I think Diana was one of those. I literally have a document <laughs> with, I would say, at least a hundred ideas. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I pitched three and they were like, okay, let's move on. I was like, yeah, but I, I, they, they weren't even my top three. And then I was trying to like pitch them in the pub afterwards. <laughs> people were like, the meeting's over, you lose. What's the matter with you? But there were just so many that yeah. I would like to do and so many different ones. So I'm not sure if any of the ones that I pitch will ever get made, but um, occasionally they'll say, oh, we're doing one on. Like when we're told that we're doing Boris, we're just so excited. Mm. That was such a cool thing to do, effectively a topical one. Mm. That was a great challenge. Mm. But on the whole, we find that pretty close. With occasionally, they'll go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, we're doing a thing on. I remember being told about Boris. I remember being told about Nick Leeson. I was just, oh, an Archer. They're like, oh, we're going to do Jeffrey mm. Archer. Think, yeah, you know, yeah. like top tier scandals. Yeah. I mean, there's never been one way going, oh, why are we doing that? You always think, oh, man. It's just such a treat, you know, because it's basically gossip. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, you're going to find out loads of stuff that you didn't know. Yeah. You're going to have a really good fun reading it out. It's just a mm. treat every time. I mean, it, I can't believe just it's such a pleasure to work on it. It's just a mad, mad treat. I, I look for, do you know what? It's like going to the cinema every week. I'm like, I'm going to read <laughs> this amazing story. It's like I'm being entertained while I'm doing my job. It's, it's phenomenal. Yeah, it's good. It's, a, it's great when you get a job like that. I agree. <laughs> and how long do you record in the studio, by the way? As you said, they're so meaty and, you know, you have multiple episodes. So how long do you get for each session? I think each session is about four hours. Wow. And sometimes we're done in like two and a half. Yeah. Sometimes three. We'll have a couple of coffee breaks and uh, Alice will sometimes go and get us bagels. Sometimes it's it's just sometimes if it's just little things like if you can't get an accent right, then that that can slow the thing down. And then sometimes just the way they're written, some series are just written in a way that it really fits your voice. Mm. And you almost don't have to think about it too much. You're always obviously aware that you're effectively it's not an audio book, but you're the, the quality of your pronunciation and delivery matters. But sometimes it's just, sometimes there's like too many S's in a sentence. I know that sounds really mad and I can never figure out, am I just tired today? Yeah. Or has this been, is there a couple of extra words? Something's just trip you and up. And sometimes yeah. it's just, it just, you, and then the, the problem is once you make one, mm. you're then so much, so some days you're just like, oh my God, I'm brain dead. <laughs> I'm holding everyone up and you're I'm busting yourself for, for taking so long. But sometimes I think that's a mixture of sometimes the writing isn't fully finished to be read out. Mm. If you were just reading it to yourself in your head, not out loud, you wouldn't notice anything. But when you've got to say it out loud, sentence construction, the proximity of often too many S's and T's next to each other or R's and W's. Mm-hmm. So you're like, well, 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 you're just like, oh my word. Often it's in the delivery It'll be things like, um, so, uh, and this part, when you've been reading aloud for four hours, you totally lose, like, all words lose meaning. So you're like, she looks at him now. She looks at him now. <laughs> she looks at him. 
now you're like how am I supposed to because <laughs> in a way we're sort of actors in a, it's yeah. like quasi yeah. it's like narration slash acting yeah. slash you know it's, it's in its own little genre of what it requires of you as a presenter and then there are times when the, my favourite bits are when just for like our own personal amusement where usually the dialogue is very clear and you'll put on a different voice so it'd be like Boris Johnson looks at Michael Gove and you go, oh, you fuck me of you, bastard. And it's like, it's obvious that I say that as Boris Johnson, that's easy. But then sometimes in the script, in, in like the narration, if you like, they'll want you to think as them, but, but it's in your voice, if you see what I mean. Okay. So it'll be, it, so, but then it sounds like you're saying it. So it'll be stuff like, he'll make sure that little bastard doesn't get away with it again. And you're like, that sounds like I'm editorialising. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to be. So I was like, is, is it right? Can't we just like make Boris say that so that I don't sound like I've thrown shade on some poor civil servant or some innocent flunky. Um, but that all just makes it work. You know, the, the, all those things just make it so much fun to entertain because I think the genre itself and, and the tone that we set from day one allows us to be a little bit cheeky. Yeah. We can push it a little bit. And I think hopefully the audience will forgive us if we're a little bit rude or disrespectful from time to time. Mm. <laughs> Speaking of that, I mean, it's obviously quite a funny podcast, but some of the topics that you've covered are, you know, edging on serious. You know, you've done the Litvinenko case, for example. Yeah. How do you approach making topics like that funny? Because there's presumably some moments in there that are quite sensitive. Yeah. I mean, and that was series one. I really struggled to find a way through that, really. You know, Alice and I had never worked together before. I'd listened to the American series, but that's just a guy on his own. It wasn't two-hander. I was worried. You, you never want to be laughing at the wrong bit. Yeah. And obviously, we were all horrified by what Alexander Litvinenko went through and what his family went through. And obviously, someone who keenly follows the news, and particularly like politics and things like that, just took it very, very seriously. Equally, I think in any story, there are bits of light and shade where if you're going to tell a particular story in this way, the, the listener needs relief. Otherwise, it is mm. just too overwhelmingly depressing. And Lugovoy and Kovtan are the two goons that are dispatched from the Kremlin to kill Litvinenko are a pair of clowns and, and they're carrying polonium 210 around with them in their breast jacket. One of them wanted to be a porn star. They keep going to these nightclubs that have like brass dicks for taps and things. So there was lots of easy fun to be had around the edges. But I thought that was a really hard one for us really to, to, to start off on a new gig when you know it's probably going to be quite a big show because the American show had been big and so lots of people are going to listen to this. For that to be our first series to understand how to get the tone right, I just thought, oh God, I hope we're getting this right. Yeah, so I think with those ones, it is more difficult. I think we've naturally gravitated towards stories that make it, a bit easier. I think if they're too dark, then that is difficult. And I think there are lots of stories that are genuine scandals in British history that we probably wouldn't go near just because there's so little relief to be had and it would be inappropriate to have any relief at all. So yeah, I think it's that you, you want a story that is, that the stakes have to be pretty high, I think. It can't just be a kind of, oh, it was a bit of gossip. People have to be aware that this was a serious thing whether it's a, a murder or a grand crime or whatever it is. Um, if it's fraud, it has to be big numbers involved. So you're never really dealing with victimless crimes, but th they have to be of a type of crime and a type of scandal that does allow you moments of light. Because otherwise, I, I mean, we can all think of ones in, in recent 
you know, the last 30 years where I don't think it would be appropriate for British scandal to do some of the horrific things that, that we've been mm-hmm. through as a country. So, yeah, and I think sometimes it's about how you go through a scandal as well as, I think one of the clever things that we've done in the last few years is base them around a person. Mm. So, for instance, Boris Johnson, and that allows you to do Partygate and PPE. And, and in a way, the, the protagonist is your way into, a, like Gascoigne was, was a way, we'd already done phone hacking, but Gascoigne was a whole number of things, mm. uh, his own behavior towards his wife, but also his, the fact that his phone was hacked, celebrity culture, tabloid culture, laddism in the 90s, like you were able to hit a sort of number of things through that one protagonist. And I think that's perhaps something we'll do more of in the future. Where do you see the line between the sort of true crime element of British scandal and the sort of satirical nature of it? It's so odd because it's just evolved as we've gone along, really. And I think with each series, maybe the line's in a different place. Mm. Mm. And I think we're we're just like on an ever oscillating (laughs) scale where with some series it's more one and with some series it's more of the other. And I think think our audience has allowed us a, a certain amount of wit to be a bit more serious at times and a bit less serious on others and treat different protagonists in different ways and, and find our way through. I think they trust Alice and I as a, as a pair to take them through each story in the, in the, in the way that will, will be funny when it's appropriate or, or whatever. And at times we'll be satirical at times we won't be. And I think, I think, it, I think it purely depends on the series and the way that we choose to um, attack it. But I think it's, I think it's basically half and half. And some series it'll be 70, 30, and sometimes it'll be 60, 40, and it depends on the subject matter. Obviously, for instance, Jeffrey Archer is a different type of protagonist to Gascoigne, and uh, Boris Johnson is a different type of protagonist to Nick Leeson or to John Darwin. Like, you're led by the, 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 the individual stories, I guess. Mm. Mm. Is there ever like a crossover with, we've been interviewed by Piers Morgan, but presumably he's come up in the hacking scandal episodes and vice versa you know you're doing a story about Boris Johnson one day you might get him on does that crossover ever worry you or has that ever been an issue with when you've tried to get guests on if you've already kind of covered them in a in a very specific way on British scandal it's not been a problem no if anything I find it like a great extra element of research because (laughs) I've interviewed so many of the people I've interviewed Archer I've interviewed Mm. Andy Coulson I'm trying to think who else has cropped up you know good or bad really i imagine that makes it much easier to do the voices if you've spent you know an hour interviewing them <laughs> and true. then at least an hour going through the edit afterwards yeah. but it's just extra context you know when we sat there talking about something i mean obviously i'm obsessed with these things anyway so i remember mm. so many of them in in, in detail mm. and i've read so many books about them and so many political biographies because I'm sad. So I, I already am kind of immersed in that world a lot of the time. And I genuinely love Jeffrey Archer's books. <laughs> so, and I've, read, I've read most of his novels. <laughs> so embarrassing, but they're just a really good read. Whoever wrote them has done great job. Um, and I've had him on my podcast. You know, so it's, it's, it just gives you that extra bit of colour, I guess. It just gives you that extra layer of paint where you go, oh, I, I, they did that because of that. Or actually the thing with him is... And it could only just be one little insight. Mm. But in a way, it's uh, it all helps, I think. And having encountered them gives it an extra buzz, really. But there's never any issue. No one has ever said, I'm not coming on the political party because you've spoken about me on British Scandal mm-hmm. or, or the other way around. I mean, with British Scandal, it, it, the political party, if anything, has been a great help for 
getting guests and being led by who will come on and just context of things, often how to pronounce names when we're dealing with like Russian oligarchs or whatever, mm-hmm. and text someone and say, how do we pronounce this guy's name? Because they'll have met him. <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, little things like that. If it, It's not been a hindrance at all. It's been a huge help. Mm. And lots of politicians listen to British Scandal and love it. I do was going to ask about that, actually. Do you know what the, uh, for, for both political party and uh, British Scandal, do you know how popular it is in the, in the corridors of power? I think the political party is very popular inside Westminster, definitely. And I, I know just through things that people have told me and <laughs> sort of messages I've seen from people who listens to it. I mean, obviously, if you're getting like a cabinet minister on, their colleagues are going to listen to it. Mm. <laughs> and I know a lot of them listen to it anyway, just because they're interested. And I guess it's a show about them. So in a way, Ooh. it's like a, it's part sort of trade mag, really, in audio <laughs> form. My intention is, to, is, is for it to be the opposite and for it to be taking politics out there and making it accessible. But I think the side effect is that for a lot of them, they think, I've actually never heard that person speak at length. I'm interested in them or they're an opponent or whatever. With British Scandal, I know that a lot, know a lot of ministers and shadow ministers that listen to it and it's like their, their guilty pleasure. <laughs> and often they will know a lot of the people involved. And I think that's, again, mm. that's partly what draws them in. I'm curious about that big document of potential British Scandal pitches you mentioned earlier. What would you say is your top one that you would really love to get a chance to sink your teeth into? David Icke. Oh, oh, excellent. Fun. In a way, I can see the episode already, and I obviously wouldn't write it, but this guy started off as a goalkeeper for Coventry City. Did he? So you either start with him I in goal. Yeah, that. he's playing goal for Coventry. <laughs> Me neither. Yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. And then he was a sports broadcaster, and then he became a conspiracy theorist. Mm. So I think you either start with the Wogan interview. Right. And then you zip back, or you start with him, you know, lumping the ball forward for someone to score against Man United or whatever. Mm. And then I, I just think conspiracy theories have become so big in the last few years and obviously like during COVID were, were so dangerous and harmful and in the wake of 9-11 and, and you see the real pernicious nature of them and, and who they're driven by and the whole Alex Jones Infowars stuff QAnon mm. and I just think you can trace so much of that back to David Icke you know this guy was selling out Wembley Arena 20 years ago there's a huge market for his books and I, I just think it's a fascinating story anyway that this guy used to play in golf for Coventry at, at one point before Alex Jones was the biggest and most successful conspiracy theorist on the planet. And then, you know, the, the MMR thing in the Lancer and, and just how have we ended up in a world where conspiracy is a, a mainstream? And I think he is at the root of so much of that. And I think that would be a really... And again, what I think one of the great charms of British Scandal is we have that um, sort of elite level snobbery here which, ma- which makes it great you know it feels very powerful and very serious and lots of <laughs> you know bastards and all that sort of thing like it's great it's like bond you know all the all like the baddies in the films like you can do all that but also it's just so funny when it's places like coventry or you know just like normal british places it's so funny to have things going on there you know that like big things come out of small places i think there's something really funny about you know, like all the fuss over the Binley mega chippy and like, it, it just seems so funny about Greg's and, and you know, just all that I, I find really, it really tickles me that Americans would then listen to that. <laughs> A conspiracy with tendrils reaching all the way to Hull. Exactly, yeah. And then I do love, I do love like a good gangster thing. Like I really love the Great Train Robbery. Mm. Um, I think like, you know, they're like little Guy Ritchie films. So 
The craze would be good. I think the Glasgow Ice Cream Wars would be amazing. Oh, yes. And that would get us out of London. You know, that would get us into Scotland. I think that'd be great. Obviously, the political side of me, I would love to do one on Corbyn. I think whenever uh, what's happened with the SNP plays out, one on Sturgeon would be fascinating. And we don't have mm. enough female protagonists in our series. It's always men. Mm. So I think maybe th- those two would have to wait a while. But yeah, I think Ike would be my top choice because I just think there's so, that is such a deep. It's very rich, well. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah. And it's batshit. It's just like, the stuff you'd uncover in there would just be, you know, obviously that's part of the problem. <laughs> and I think, but part of the, the joy of these sorts of things is you kind of feel guilty for enjoying this. You're like, a lot of this is bad. <laughs> this, is like, this is like a naughty pleasure. Like this is, we shouldn't be laughing at but this. But that's what people have, people, that's what people love about this kind of stuff and always have through mm. history. That's why it works so well is, is, is that yeah. it's not a new idea. It's just packaged up in a new format, which is, yeah. so listenable to mm. well I hope so and you do have to laugh at it I mean it's like it's part of the human condition isn't it to, yeah. to laugh at how bad things almost got you know it's mm. like when you almost fall over <laughs> <laughs> it's like thanks for that didn't happen you know? <laughs> before we send you off Matt who's been your favourite voice to do on British Scandal I loved doing I think the Boris series, I think getting to do Boris Johnson so often on mm. there felt like a real treat because there is somewhere you'll occasionally just get to do the odd person. You think, oh, that's quite fun. Mm. Mm. But getting to really, and it was the bits where he'd like have a strop. Because mm. in my stand-up, if I'm doing Boris Johnson, I'll do the bits that are sort of good for, you know, are you the sort of general, are you waffle? Uh, <laughs> Greek to be on there, are you, what is it, the pod, pod, pod? Are you podcast about podcasting? Are you sort of, are eating itself? Yes. You know, it's that kind of just nonsense. A constant stream of mess that comes Shit out of his mouth. Nonsense. And yeah. that's our trailer. <laughs> but when you're getting to play him and it's like a script and you're doing the where the fuck is that briefing I'll, I'll get you you know and it's all that you're like oh man that was almost like getting to play him in a film ring mm-hmm. you know, like, these, these are like the really dramatic moments that were there was something really um, pleasurable but I think that was so much fun because you'd done that on like, Spitting it, Image as well right had you done Boris on Spitting yes, Image yes I played Boris on Spitting Image yeah mm. so was it going back into that I think so, yeah. But it was, it was. I enjoyed this way more because, again, with Spitting Image, you're always just doing the kind of, right, you're doing the, the comedy strokes. bits. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'm like, you know, him trying to fuck anything that walks or like <laughs> eat a plate of sausages, <laughs> or, you know, whatever it is. Like, you know, just a man that's like, <laughs> and can't control himself and it is a bit thick. Whereas this felt like such a, a an original way to bring contemporary politics to life and to really shine a light on what he was like. I just thought that was incredible. I was like, oh my God, this feels, it felt kind of spookier in a way. It felt more like I was really being Boris Johnson than just when I'm mucking about being Boris Johnson. Mm-hmm. This felt like, oh my word, this is like, this is almost magical. You you could feel that you were sort of summoning, you know, like you felt like you were kind of in the room. <laughs> you could really spit the venom out. You're like, oh man. And that's what's great about it is really you are just bringing detail to colour and, and, and you're you're making it, more vivid for people and, and you're, you're in a way I, and I guess this is just like uh, I mean fundamentally all I'm doing is putting on a silly voice but if you can make people really like see and feel that scenario you're like man what a great bit of entertainment that is you know what I also think is people can listen to this for free yes and isn't that great you're like this is 
the talent and the work that goes into this, the writers and the production, the sound of it, like you're putting out like these mini TV shows really for the ears. <laughs> what I love is just the level of escapism you can give to people mm. in various different ways. And I think what British Scandal really allows us to do is really use everything that is at your disposal as an audio medium. It's not just the spoken word. It's like you're using voices and sound design and stuff. And I bet there will be times where people will really think, I can see that now. Yeah. Mm. And I really feel like there's people in the room with me. And I just think, what a thoroughly entertaining treat to give people every week. Mm. And, and what a joy it is to be a part of it. I just love it. I get so much pleasure from being a part of it. And everyone who works on it is just so nice as well. I mean, that's like, again, not a question you've asked, but it, <laughs> it, everyone who works on it is just a treat. Yeah. And, a, you know, really talented and really sound. And what a privilege that is. I love that. What a way Which to must end. mean I'm the dick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the talented dick. <laughs> It must. It must mean that. Yeah. That's, that's our experience anyway, Matt. <laughs> oh, thank you. Honestly, what this has been amazing. Oh, what a pleasure. It, it genuinely is like such a, a high honour to be asked. Oh, and Thank um, you. Thank you for having me on. It's been brilliant. So that was Matt Ford talking all things political, satire, true crime, Edinburgh Festival. What have I missed? I mean, we covered <laughs> we covered so much. I really enjoyed kind of hearing him talk because I, I'm somebody who is very partisan. <laughs> and so talking to somebody who isn't, who is just very open to hearing all opinions, mm. I, I kind of really admire that because I just would not be able to do it. So that was something... You know, I try and avoid podcasts often that are not in my sort of little echo chamber. And talking to Matt made me realise that actually I need to stop doing that and I need to maybe seek out the other side a little bit more. Reem, what did you think? I think that's what the appeal was for The Rest is Politics, because that was a conversation between Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart, who do have two opposing point of views and perspectives, and yet they are able to have a civilized and informative conversation. And I think that's what people really, really enjoyed with the podcast and still enjoy with the podcast. So I think it's good to have those different perspectives as long as you still have a productive conversation out of it. Yeah. Mm. I would be interested, however, in whether or not someone else would get the same kinds of responses and the same kinds of interviews if they weren't coming from his same background of being, you know, very, very involved in politics, you know, having worked in mm. politics, having worked for the Labour Party. I wonder if that'd be the case if it was someone who wasn't from that world. Yeah, he is really playing to his strengths with that. And you're right, I'm not sure so many people would be able to make the same inroads in their interviews. But obviously some are just natural, brilliant interviewees. Angela mm. Rayner, for example, is always going to be fun, I think, to speak to. Mm. The other thing I was thinking, I was thinking about this quite a long time, actually, after we did the interview. I've been listening to Red Handed. I've been listening to British Scandal, which is always a sign, like even after the interviews, I'm still in, I'm still on the feeds. Mm. I'm still really enjoying the content. Um, but it did make me kind of reassess how we spoke about true crime in terms of our interview with Red Handed compared to how we spoke about it with Matt Ford. Because I don't, I feel like my unconscious, there's sort of, there was an unconscious bias there about a British Scandal being sort of less true crime and exploitative but actually they're 
they come from very kind of similar. They're both sort of retelling their version of the story. And yes, it does come with um, more kind of fictionalised elements with British Scandal. But it essentially it's providing the same sort of entertainment to a listener. And I mm. don't know, do you think, I feel like we maybe, I went a bit hard or we went a bit hard on Red Handed in comparison to British Scandal, which is essentially doing the same thing. I mean, I think when you think of British Scandal, although it is true crime, you might not first think of true crime as the genre that it goes by. It goes by history or comedy. Yeah, and impressions. Uh, yeah, mm. yeah. So I think that's why it's like, when you actually look into it, British Scandal are doing the same thing. But I think it's important, even if you thought about it after the interview, I think it's important to have these conversations so that, you know, when you're looking at uh, women in podcasting and how to support women in podcasting, that you're thinking of that unconscious bias mm. that you have as a listener yeah. and that you're actively trying to change it. Yeah. I think it is worth highlighting, though, that in a similar vein to me for drunk women solving crime, the fact that British Scandal deliberately chooses to tack away from stories that maybe don't have as much levity in them, I think goes a long way towards why it generally isn't perceived as certainly not the same kind of true crime as something like Red Handed, which, you know, by their own admission does have a bit of a fixation on some of the the grislier mm, uh, mm-hmm. subject matters. Yeah, because this is like, well, there are certainly, there's like a more of an emphasis on more white collar crimes and mm. spies and... Yes, and... Higher sort profile of, cases. And political intrigue and yeah. whatnot, which, you know, while it can often involve horrible, horrible murder... Yes, it if tends, you listen to the Lord Lucan episode, it certainly mm, does. yeah. Um, but it, it tends to be more of the the sort of political chicanery mm. uh, type of thing more often than than not. But it, it does make a really interesting counterpoint. Yeah. I really enjoyed going back and listening to more of British Scandal, having spoken to Matt and hearing about his relationship with Alice and how they both work mm. on the scripts and their little like inserts. And yeah, I would I would recommend. Thank you so much to Matt Ford for being such a brilliant guest. Thank you so much to Reem and Adam for being my brilliant co-hosts. Thank you for listening. So many thank yous. One more thank you to Emma Corsham for Haymarket Business Media, who produces this podcast so wonderfully every week. You can find out so much more on podpod.com. You can sign up to our daily email bulletins and you can follow us on social at podpodofficial. And obviously, don't forget to rate us five stars only and subscribe every week. This will drop into your feed. I'm your host, Rihanna Dillon, and I'll see you next time. Cheers. Bye.